If you've known me for any amount of time, practically, it will come as no surprise to you that I am a sentimental person. I, I get, I think, lovingly ribbed on most baptism Sundays because I cry every single time. I love all the traditions of Christmas. Uh, as a kid growing up in the desert of Arizona, I somehow managed to convince myself every Christmas Eve that I would wake up the next morning to a white Christmas, the only one that Phoenix probably ever had in its life. But somehow I was able to do that because I am the poster child for schmaltzy Christmas spirit. It's one reason I'm so grateful for Advent. Advent doesn't just slow us down to consider the real reason for the season. Advent stops us in our tracks with a message that we're not expecting. We want all is warm, all is bright, but Advent tells us that everything is wrong. Advent tells us that the people of God are in danger and we desperately need God to show up and knock some heads together and make things right. And that's the message that we especially hear on the second Sunday of Advent, when our lectionary readings point our attention to John the Baptist. Now, John the Baptist is hard to miss, right? John the Baptist, honey smeared across his face, little locust legs sticking out of his teeth hand absentmindedly scratching that camel shirt that he's wearing. John is the guy that we cross the street to avoid in downtown Austin. John shows up in every gospel. This story shows up in every gospel. And even though John is a character in the New Testament, he could really be considered the last Old Testament prophet. And like all of the Old Testament prophets, John is a lawyer of sorts. He's a prosecuting attorney who has been sent by God to lay out the case against God's people. And the intent of his message is here in verse 2. Repent. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now, I want to stop right there. And I want you to wrestle with how surprising that message is. If you've been around the church at all for any length of time, this is a passage that's familiar to you. This verse is familiar to you. But this is a surprising message. Remember again our reading from Isaiah. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb. The leopard shall lie down with the young goat. The calf and the lion and the fatted calf together, and a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze, the young shall lie down together. The lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra, and the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. Well, that, that sounds marvelous. And if that's the kingdom that is coming, why don't we hear John pronounce, Rejoice! The kingdom of heaven is at hand. But instead, he says, Repent. John issues a warning. Verse 8, Don't just be sorry. You'd better do things that show that you are repentant. Bear fruits 
in keeping with repentance. Verse 9, don't trust in your daddy. Instead, you need to prove yourselves to be sons of Abraham. Verse 12, if you don't get right, you're going to get left. And not just left behind, you're going to be gathered up and thrown into the unquenchable fire of God's judgment. How do you think John's message would play in our culture today? (laughs) Nobody likes to be told that they're doing something wrong. If you don't believe me, come by my office this week. I'll tell you what you're doing wrong, and you can tell me, and we'll both be mad at one another. Certainly, you and I both know the parts of of our lives where we are doing our own will instead of God's will. I'm just going to stop right there and ask you to do a little bit of introspection. Where are you pursuing your own will? instead of God's will. Repentance, the great Presbyterian preacher James Montgomery Boyce said, repentance presupposes that our lives are off course, that we need to turn around. Verse 5 tells us that everyone in that region Everyone in Jerusalem, everyone in Judea, everyone in that region around the Jordan River, everyone was coming to that river and to that prophet to hear this message. I want you to understand this. John is not a Billy Graham. He's not a traveling evangelist who's filling up the stadiums of ancient Israel. He isn't conducting mass baptisms at the, at the sea of, of the Mediterranean Sea or up at the Sea of Galilee. Instead, he is knee-deep in the Jordan River. And that's where people are coming to confess their sins. That's where people are coming to be baptized. And friends, that's significant. Don't ever skip over geography in the Bible. A place name, a place where someone is, it almost always has significance. And if you're a careful reader of the Bible, you know the significance that the Jordan River has. The Jordan River was the last barrier into the promised land. And just like the people of Israel crossed over the Red Sea on dry land, we read in Joshua chapter 3 that the same thing happens at the Jordan River. That the priests carry the Ark of the Covenant, and as soon as their feet hit the water, it piles up. And the people of Israel cross over into the land that God had promised them. Friends, John's location is highly symbolic. By their sin, God's people had become strangers to the promises of the covenant. They were no better than Gentiles. If they want to escape the coming judgment, they have to repent. And they have to enter back into the land through the river Jordan. 
this baptism, unlike other ritual washings that were known by the Jews, it wasn't so much about purification as it was about identification. The people coming to John are being reconstituted as a new Israel, ready for their Messiah. And this baptism is the first step. But John says that good deeds must also follow. And this is why it's so surprising when John turns with such sarcastic venom against the Pharisees and the Sadducees in verse 7. Look at verse 7 with me. He said to them, you brood of vipers who warned you to flee from the wrath to come. Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Friends, the Pharisees were the most objectly holy and righteous people there were in Israel. You and I get into debates on whether or not we should tithe on our gross income or our net income. They tithed on spices. They offered eloquent public prayers in the temple. They carefully observed the purity laws. You could tell a Pharisee because they dressed differently. They acted differently. Surely these are the people to look to as examples of holiness. And yet John calls them a bunch of snakes on the run from the fire of God's judgment. If the Pharisees aren't good enough, then what hope do you and I have of ever actually acting in ways that are in accord with God's law? The Greek word that John uses over and over here in chapter 3, starting in verse 2, for repent. The Greek word is one that's kind of entered into our language, and at least church language. Metanoia. Metanoia means to turn around to go in a different direction, to start over. And friends, that's the good news as we turn to the baptism of Jesus in verse 13. Because that's the new start. That's the new creation. That's the turn that we need. Jesus comes to John in verse 13 to be baptized by him. And that action has confused and frustrated every generation of Bible readers. Verse 6 tells us that the people were coming to John confessing their sins and being baptized. But you and I know that Jesus didn't have any sin to be confessed. So why is he being baptized on confession of his sin? And what does it mean in verse 15 when he tells John that this baptism is necessary to fulfill all righteousness? Go back to the symbolism of the Jordan River. Remember where John and Jesus are. A thousand years before this moment, when Israel crossed the Jordan River to come into the promised land, they left the old behind. Their history is slaves. The generation that had died in the wilderness, all of that was behind them. It was the promise of new life that lay before them. Now fast forward to Matthew chapter 3. Now the people of Israel are going through the river again. 
It's a sign that they're getting ready, getting ready for a greater conquest. They're getting ready for God's defeat of all evil. They're getting ready for the establishment of that kingdom that is heavenly, but will become earthly. Who's going to lead them? Who's going to lead them into battle and conquest? A thousand years before, they had Joshua. Now they need a new Joshua. Or as his name would be translated into Greek, they needed Jesus. Warfare is in front of them. Conquest, destruction, violence, all lays ahead. But what no one at the time could have predicted was that instead of inflicting that violence on his enemies, Jesus would endure the violence himself. God's acts would cut him down. He who knew no sin would become the chaff burned up by God's unquenchable fire of judgment. Folks, I know better than most that it can be tempting to turn Advent into just a season of preparation. Rushing around trying to get those Christmas cards out the door, buying gifts, decorating the house, getting things ready for out-of-town company. But on our way to Christmas, we can't rush past John's message of violence and judgment. For that's the real reason for the season. Our king has come. And starting with his baptism until his ascension into heaven, he triumphed over the powers of death and hell. And now he rules and reigns in victory and he is coming again, not to bear the judgment against sin this time, but to remake the world in righteousness and peace. You and I are on the frontier. We're on the cusp of that turn of ages from this present evil age to the age to come. And just like those ancient Israelites who heard John's message and responded by renewing their identity as the people of God, we must respond in the same way. But don't hear John's command to repent as bare law. If repentance is ultimately something that is in your power to accomplish then you and I have a lot to repent of because we don't repent, do we? One author says this, if I am told over and over to repent, to change, to orient my life to God, nothing will ever happen. I don't need to hear exhortations to repent. I need power from outside myself to make me different. The power that comes from outside of ourselves rose up from the Jordan River with the Father's blessing ringing in his ears. <laughs> but Eric, that's just the point. I, I don't know if the power of Christ is at work in me. 
I still do the things that I hate to do, and I don't do the things that I know are right. Folks, for the rest of your earthly life, you will never outgrow the need for Jesus. You'll never get to the point where you can tell him, you know, Jesus, you can go focus on someone else for a little while. Your work here is done. Instead, you will return again and again to the waters of baptism. You will remember the good news that you have died. Not of natural causes. You have died because the Son of God went to war against your sin. You have died and you have been buried with Him. His warfare reached even you, but He turned you, His enemy, into His friend. And that means that your defeat is your ultimate victory. The benediction that Jesus hears in verse 17 This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. Friends, that's also the blessing that God pronounces over you in Christ. That blessing was Christ's before He began His public ministry. And that blessing belongs to you at the beginning of your Christian life to give you the power to obey and to be the voice that beckons you home when you begin to wander away. God is determined to have his way with the creation that he loves. He's going to start with you. But he won't stop until the earth is full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the seas. Let's pray. Oh God, may we hear John. May we hear and obey. Not by resolving to try again a thousand different ways that we failed before. Not by looking to our own power. Not by pulling ourselves up from our bootstraps. But may we hear and listen by returning to Jesus by finding our identity in Him, by looking to Him as our valiant captain who has led the way to victory, even though that victory is our own death. And Father, may we look to Him for resurrection life, a life that animates us now, even as we await the fullness of the kingdom to come. We pray all of this in Christ's name. Amen.